Morning. How y'all doing? Good, good, tired, tired. I heard four people respond, so I'm just going to assume the responses of the rest of you, but it's okay. Um, Most of you, or a lot of you probably know, we are in, well, everybody knows we are in the Christmas season now. Merry Christmas. All I want for Christmas is you, all that. Um, But we are, um, during this season, we're walking through the story of the birth of Jesus. We're walking through Luke chapter 1 and 2, and there's a reason for that. It's because during the fall, we walked through a series called Storied, in which we looked primarily at these stories from the Old Testament, and where God intervened in these surprising and unforeseeable ways. And we asked, what does it mean for God to intervene in our stories? How do we learn to expect God's intervention in our own lives? Well, these stories from the Old Testament are all pointing forward to the intervention of the Holy Spirit, to the intervention that comes in the birth of Jesus. So those stories look forward to the birth of Jesus, and we in our lives look backward to the birth of Jesus to see how God is with us, how he shares our pain, how he shares our suffering, how he can empathize, as Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest that is unfamiliar with our suffering, so that we can look forward to his coming again. So we're looking at the story of the coming of Jesus, because ultimately Jesus with us is the conclusion, it's the climax of all of our stories. So that's why we're doing this this year. Luke chapter 1, we're picking up right where we left off last week, Luke chapter 1. We are going to start reading in verse 39, we're just going to go ahead and jump in. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you as we do every time we gather, singing your, to, your truth, presenting our needs to you, and opening your word. And we ask this morning, as we do every week, that your word would speak through the power of your Holy Spirit, that anything that's just my ideas or my thoughts would be revealed so it can be rejected, but if there's anything that is from you, that can form our hearts to you, that it would be remembered, because the only name that matters this morning is the name of Jesus. We love you. Amen. 
Have you ever thought about how the gifts that you like change over the years? Okay, obviously the biggest difference is from when you were a kid till now. When I was a kid, the only gifts that I wanted were gifts that I could shoot, throw, or crash into something, right? Do you remember back in the day when people would buy clothes from like JCPenney or Belk and it would come in a sweater box? You know what I'm talking about? I hated seeing gifts with my name on it that were in a sweater box because I knew exactly what it looked like. I knew what the size was, and that meant someone got me clothes, and I did not care about sweaters or clothes. I wanted something that was going to light up or that I could shoot at something. It was the only thing I cared about at Christmas. I remember going to family gatherings and seeing adults get tools for Christmas and thinking that was the worst gift. It's a chore. You don't give somebody a chore for Christmas? That's ridiculous. I thought it was the worst. Now, as an adult, the only things I ask for are clothes and tools. It's like, I've got projects to fix. My six-year-old breaks things. I need tools. That's what I ask for. When my parents ask me what I want, it's always what it is. But it's not just the difference between when we were a kid and now we're adults. I remember Jen and I, uh, we've been married for almost 10 years. When we got married, I was 21. Um, and I remember we got back from our honeymoon and we were opening up our wedding gifts. And we opened up a card that had both of our names on it. So you would assume that what's inside is for both of us, right? We open it up. It's got a nice little note in it. Congratulations, you know. Hope everything works out. Whatever. Um, <laughs> and there was a gift card in there that was to Bed Bath & Beyond. And I was like, wow, they got you a really nice gift, Jen. I wonder what they got me. Because there was no way that was for both of us. It had both of our names on it, but I didn't want a Bed Bath & Beyond gift card. Now, as a 30-year-old, I realized that I would love a Bed Bath & Beyond gift card. I think about that, and I'm like, listen, we could update our cast irons. We could get some of those cornbread cast irons that look like corn. Those are so cool, right? And we could probably get some new knives. And, man, we could probably get a topper for the mattress that would keep my back from hurting every time I sleep. 30s weird, guys. Way different from 29, just for the record. Um, but our, my perspective on gifts has changed. And, and here's the point I want to make. The way we receive a gift changes based on where we're at in life. The way a gift strikes us changes based on our situation. The things that I would have hated when I was young, that would not have interested me at all, would be a blessing now. The things that I would have not thought twice about when I was young consume my thoughts as an adult. The way we interact with a gift changes depending on our situation in life. The way we interact with the same gift changes as we change. Now, what we just read is often called the Magnificat, or Mary's Song. It's something that's been celebrated throughout church history, used in liturgies and plays and songs. And this is Mary celebrating a gift. She is acknowledging the gift that we celebrate at Christmas, that God is with us, that he has come. And she's celebrating that gift through a song. And it's this beautiful thing, because Mary is 
coming to her cousin. She's just found out, just recently discovered that she's pregnant and that this baby is God's son. It's a ridiculous prophecy. Up until this point, she has probably, and she's not showing, she's probably wondering if this is even real. She's definitely wondering if anyone's going to believe her if she tells this story because I'm pregnant and God is the baby is not a story most people believe. It's an outlandish thing that she is claiming. So she goes to see her cousin and As soon as she says hello, her cousin, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophetically affirms the gift that has been given to Mary. Can you imagine the relief that Mary felt when she was finally able to say it out loud and someone said, you're not crazy? This is from the Lord. Elizabeth affirms, empowered by the Holy Spirit as a prophet, what is going on in Mary affirms the vision and the gift that she's been given. And Mary's natural reaction, her instinctual reaction, is to break out in song. In fact, there's a pastor, Rich Viotis, who calls the first couple chapters of Luke a musical because over and over and over again, people break out in song. Mary sings her worship and her joy at the work that God is doing in the gift of his coming. It's a beautiful thing. And as we read commentaries, if you were to read sermons, in fact, even Spurgeon wrote an an extensive sermon about the Magnificat. And oftentimes, the thing that we're instructed to do as we study this beautiful worship song of Mary is to use this, for this to be an inspiration for us to worship. It's, It's a guide for how we should respond to the gift that God gives us. We see the gift and we should respond in worship. And see, this is a beautiful gift. God's merciful from generation to generation. He's powerful and he's mighty to save. He keeps his promises to those to whom he makes promises. It's a beautiful gift. But then we keep reading. And in this beautiful gift, he promises to scatter the proud in their inmost thoughts. And he promises to bring down rulers from their thrones. He promises to give the poor good things, but to send the rich away empty. This is a gift that strikes us differently depending on where we're at in life. The gift of the good news of the gospel, the gift of the coming of Jesus, is a disruptive gift that strikes us differently depending on our situation in life. Now, we've got we've to point out something here. We've talked about this a few times at the fold. When we get to verses like this, us millennials and Gen Z can get really excited. We start playing Rage Against the Machine and start like tweeting mean things at Jeff Bezos, right? Because we're like, eat the rich, down with the rich. We get really excited about that kind of stuff. So we tweet at Jeff Bezos, and then we put off ordering our Christmas presents because we know we've got Prime, and we can have them delivered in two days anyway. Um, so I just want to point out something. We've talked pretty extensively at the fold about wealth and about resources and about God's perspective on those things. And we can certainly say that scripture is a commentary on our consumer culture and greed and materialism and flaunting of wealth. That's certainly true. But we need to put this in perspective. There's going to be a slide up on the screen that I want to show you. This is research that was done in, it was compiled in 2015. The research was done, I believe this was done in 2011. It's by Pew Research, and it compares the wealth distribution of Americans to the rest of the world. Now, what you're going to see 
on this screen is that the bottom is Americans' wealth distribution. The top is the distribution of wealth globally. So, in the United States, 56% of us are considered high income on a global scale, and 32% of us are considered upper middle class. To put that in perspective, 88% of people living in the United States are upper middle class on a global scale. So in other words, 88% of us are considered wealthy if we consider this on a global scale. Just to put this into context, 16% of the rest of the globe is considered wealthy. 88% of us are. So for as much as we like to read verses like this and say, yeah, bring down the rich, give the rulers what they deserve, if we are answering this, if we're reading this on a global scale, 88% of us in this room are the ones getting sent away empty. And it's a much smaller percentage are the ones that are getting filled with good things. Because the gift of the gospel is disruptive. See, if you have been victim in any way of the badness of the fall of evil in the world, then the promise of a God who comes to make things right is a gift. But if you have accommodated the badness, then the gift is a disruption. For any of us who have accommodated the world as it is, the gospel is a disruption. Now, here's what I want to do. This is going to be a little bit weird, and I'm not even sure if this is going to work, but roll with me anyway, all right? I want to do a thought experiment, okay? So we've got to do some pretend. And I know this isn't kids' ministry, but we're going to use our imaginations anyway. Sound good? All right. We're going to do some pretend. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine with me that the world as we know it, a, and a crazy earthquake happens. It is struck by just an unimaginable earthquake. In fact, if you go back in American history, there was an earthquake that hit in the colonial times of the middle United States. And the way they describe the earthquake in history is that mountains and hills and bluffs disappeared and reappeared in other locations. Where it was flat, it became hill country. Where it was hill country, it was settled. The earth shook so strongly that the Mississippi River actually eddied and flowed north instead of south in certain places. It was crazy. We're talking about something like this. Imagine that an earthquake comes and that somehow, in some just unimaginable circumstance, this earthquake causes our reality, the ground that we're standing on, to shift 45 degrees. All right, we got it? Can you imagine that? Like I said, it's a little bit of a stretch. Just roll with me. The ground shifts 45 degrees. Now, you can imagine the way that that would change things. Where there is flat now, it would be hills. Where there are mountains and where there is rugged country now, it would be flat. Where there used to be lakes, they would flow down into rivers. Where there are rivers, they would change course. Everything that we know about the world would be different if things changed. Those of us who live in relatively flat neighborhoods would be living in houses tilted 45 degrees. Some of us would have houses that were completely destroyed in the earthquake. It would be extremely disruptive to life as we know it. But we can imagine, we don't have to stretch too far to imagine how human beings would respond to something like this. 
if this devastating earthquake happened and it shifted our reality 45 degrees, it's not a stretch to imagine that some of us, many of us actually, would probably just leave our homes behind and move to the flat country. The place that we were seems uninhabitable now, so we're just going to leave everything behind and start over, and we're going to start claiming land in this new flat country. Sure, it's mountains, sure, it's rocky, sure, it's rugged, it's not ideal, it's not great land, but we're going to leave behind what we had and just start over somewhere new, right? It's pretty easy to imagine. But we can also imagine that there would be people in this circumstance that for good reasons and bad reasons would decide to make businesses to uh, make organizations that were built on helping people survive the disruption, right? And, And a lot of this would be done with the right intentions. Some people would be saying, you know what, I have the resources and I want to help. So they would start nonprofits to help people resettle. And there would be some people who are just, they're just people. They are good at construction. They're good at this type of work. So they're going to do what everybody does. They're going to do their job helping people set their houses right or helping people sell their destroyed property so they can purchase somewhere else, right? And, and some people would probably have nefarious intentions. It's not a stretch. We all know that the unfortunate reality of the human experience is that anywhere there is a tragedy, there is someone making money off of it. It's just the reality. In this environment, there would be people profiting off of other people's suffering. There'd probably be people making a lot of money off of other people's suffering. And then there would be most of the rest of us. Most of us who don't really have the resources to pick up and move for whatever reason. Maybe maybe we've got family or responsibilities or things that keep us stuck in this tilted house. And some of us would cling to this naive hope that's impossible that somehow another earthquake's going to come and make everything right. And we would just keep hoping, even though it's never going to happen. And then there would be some of us who don't really have the ability to get out of the rubble. So we just embrace it. This is life now. Life's hard. We would cope however we cope. We would do whatever we have to do to survive. Not necessarily with good intentions. Not necessarily with evil intentions. We would just survive. Now, you can imagine, in this circumstance, how disruptive it would be for someone to offer to level the world again. Now, we would know that that's objective good news. The ecosystem would operate better if the world were returned to its right level. Every human would have more resources and opportunity if it were returned to its right level. It would be objectively good news for individuals and communities. But it would be deeply disruptive. Because everybody in some way has accommodated the tilt. See, this is what Mary is singing about. This is not a very subtle analogy. You've probably figured it out. In Christian terms, we call it the fall. The reality is the world that we live in has been broken, has been tilted. Things are askew. And to varying degrees, we've all learned how to survive in this world. 
We've all done what we had to do, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons. Most of us don't necessarily have nefarious intentions. We're just trying to survive. And Mary is celebrating this beautiful, objectively good gift that God comes to set everything right, that Jesus comes to offer a level world again. And that is good news. There's a reason why Jesus was consistently followed around by prostitutes and by thieves and by sinners. There's a reason why he spent so much time in their homes, because the people who have not thrived in the tilt find a level world good news. Those with nothing to offer religiously or physically or spiritually find the invitation of Jesus easy to receive. And there's a reason why Jesus was constantly confronted and conflicted by the religious elite and by those with power and by those with any sort of esteem because he was offering to tilt the world right again and they had accommodated the tilt. And it was disruptive, and it was frustrating, and it was difficult. The gift of the good news of Jesus is objectively good. It's good news that you are loved. It's good news that you're forgiven. It's good news that you are welcomed into the kingdom. But it's also news that you need just as much welcome as everybody else does. And that's disruptive if you didn't think you were homeless. You know, when we go do ministry downtown and we we give food to people who are homeless and we offer to pray with them, we often have to have conversations about being careful who you give food to because it's offensive to offer a sandwich to someone who doesn't think they need it. It's disruptive to offer help to someone who doesn't realize they need it, even though it's a beautiful gift to give a sandwich to someone who's hungry. The gospel is disruptive. Because it tells us that I need the same grace as the people that I look down on. I need the same mercy as those that I don't trust. That the villains of history are in the same spiritual position as I'm in. And that we all receive the same invitation. The gospel is a deeply disruptive concept. Now, for most of us, And I'm painting with a broad brush here, but my assumption is that for most of us, when we originally receive the good news of the gospel, that we see that it's good news. The idea that we can be forgiven, that we can be loved, that we can be welcomed in, that our past is not held against us, is good news. But for most of us, as we endeavor to follow the way of Jesus, there comes a point in which we halt the disruption of the gospel. And we continue to accommodate life as it is. There comes a point in which we say, the good news that I'm forgiven is wonderful, but the news that my life needs to change in this area is disruptive. So we hold the good news of Jesus at a distance because even though it's objectively good, it's also objectively difficult and disruptive. For some of us, that might be holding on to small sins. Uh, We just cheat on our taxes a little bit. It's just a little bit of flirting at the office. You know, it's never going to lead into anything. Like, I'm not actually going to cheat. We're never really going to touch, but I mean, what, what problems are going to cause? It's just a little bit of lust. You know, it's just, it's just a little bit of pornography. You know, it's only when I'm stressed. I mean, we pick socially acceptable chemical dependencies, ones that don't get us cut off from our family but that still cloud our judgment and affect our reality of the world, our, our interaction with reality. Others of us, our accommodation might come in 
not wanting to think about the gospel implications of certain things. Now, now we're being very direct here, and I'm going to propose some difficult questions. This is a beautiful, uplifting, happy Christmas sermon, amen? Yeah. We might love the idea that we can all be forgiven, but stop thinking about the repercussions of fast fashion on the world when we buy gifts. Because the gospel implication that everyone deserves justice and equity would directly disrupt the way that I purchase Christmas gifts. We might love the idea of God answering prayer and intervening on our behalf and learn to be people who pray, but halt at the idea of thinking about how our food and our consumption impacts global supply or considering the fact that there are some people who don't have food while we have food that goes bad. Even though if you study the life of Jesus, there are direct gospel implications for how we manage all of our resources, including the ones we consume. We might love the idea of worship, but halt our consideration about how we manage our own wealth, or where we vacation, or how this affects our politics. And if you think that I'm telling people to vote for your party, I'm not. I'm telling you to quit voting for a party and start considering the actual repercussions of the things that we do. I don't care what party you vote for, and I will go on the record for that. The gospel implications in our lives are disruptive, and they're difficult. When I start thinking about the gospel implications of how I parent my children— it gets a lot more uncomfortable than just thinking about whether or not I read a Bible story at night to them. When I start thinking about the implications on my life of the way Jesus interacts with, let's say, the poor prostitutes, the thieves, the sinner killed on the cross, it changes the way I treat that uncle that has disgraced the family and isn't invited to Christmas anymore. The gospel implications are significant. Now, I want to say this. These are all difficult questions. And the idea here is is not to provide a simple answer. Look, I know we're, most of us, familiar with the fact that a lot of the clothes that we wear are made by people who are just barely above slaves. But I also know that for most of us, buying fair trade is not financially reasonable. We've got a difficult thing to wrestle with. I might offer buying secondhand. That's just one recommendation. But my goal this morning is not to tell you what to do with your money. My goal this morning is to ask you to be disrupted by the gospel and prayerfully make the decision of what to do with it. Listen, we have to have boundaries with healthy family members and unhealthy family members. I'm not telling you to spend time with someone doing harm directly to you or your family, but I am telling you to allow the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus to disrupt your perspective instead of just allow your feelings or circumstances to adjust your perspective. And let the Holy Spirit make that decision with you. Because the good news of Jesus is good news, but it's disruptive. And it's difficult. And we can be people who proclaim the goodness and love and mercy of Jesus and who live prayerful, celebratory lives and who go to church and who tithe, but who never actually live out the values of the kingdom of God because our current culture is just very comfortable. 
But for the record, Jesus didn't get crucified because he worshiped and prayed. He was crucified because his values and his life was deeply disruptive to the world around him. The idea of the gospel is that we are all loved. But that means we all need the same love, even if we think that we're perfectly lovable. The gospel tells us that the most powerful thing in the universe is mercy, forgiveness, and self-sacrifice, which is beautiful if you don't have much power, but is undermining if you do have power. The gospel tells us that the best thing we can do with our money is be generous, which is great if you don't have a lot to sacrifice with. But it's really difficult when generosity would affect your lifestyle. The gospel is disruptive. So this is my, my simple question for us this morning, is as we worship and as we celebrate, as we celebrate and remember the gift of Jesus this Christmas, what does the Holy Spirit need to disrupt in your life? What's the thing that you have been holding comfortably to in lifestyle, in thought pattern, that the Holy Spirit would like to disrupt Because there is goodness you're missing out on. Because there is a gift that you're holding at arm's length. And I want to say this, because this has been heavy. I understand that. Sometimes church is supposed to be heavy. But for many of us, the thing that needs to be disrupted is the the things we believe about ourselves. For many of us, the disruption of the gospel is finally allowing Jesus to say, no, I do love you. I know what you did, and I do love you. I find you beautiful and captivating. It doesn't matter what anyone else has said. Maybe, just maybe, for you this morning, the thing you need to allow the Holy Spirit to disrupt is the lies and self-talk that you have been putting on yourself. And it's hard to get rid of those things, But you just need to choose to trust the truth that you are loved, that you are welcome, that the King of Kings loves you. And let that disrupt everything else in your life in the most beautiful gift possible because you will finally see the beauty that is the image of God in you. Let's pray. Jesus, I would rather you have not disrupted things. There are a lot of places in my life that I do not particularly like the implications of your gospel because they ask me to do things differently that I don't particularly want to. So Jesus, I ask you to teach me that your gift is truly good, whether I see the goodness or not. That your way is genuinely better, whether I believe it or not. Jesus, when we would prefer to comfortably continue living the same way we have been, keeping your goodness at arm's length, Teach us to be people who can be disrupted. Show us the ways we have accommodated the tilt in the world. 
so that we can receive the full goodness of the gift you offer. And Jesus, for every person here who believes that the gift of your love is for someone else, not for them, disrupt that. Disrupt that lie. Whisper to their hearts that they are loved and welcome, that they are cherished and valuable, that your sins do not, that their sins do not surprise you, that their doubts do not offend you, but that you love them. Let your goodness be the disruptor of our lives and hearts so that we can see fully your love and your truth and your hope for us and for the world around us. We love you, Jesus. Amen.